Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is entitled Bombshell. It is from the album Mariposa Gold. It is out on one of my all time favorite labels, Perpetual Doom. And my guest today is Thomas Oliverio of Tommy and the O's, who is the band that does that song. Um, Tom, as you'll learn, Tom, Tom, Thomas Oliverio is from Nashville, but uh, grew up outside Chicago. So we obviously hit it off because I seem to have a knack for hitting it off with my fellow Illinois, Chicago-ish folks. Um, All things Thomas Oliverio and Tommy and the O's is in the show notes. Please check it out. This is a really great album. It is a, um, I don't know if you say multi genre influenced or whatever but it's fucking great it's it's just a killer album and uh it has gone into my earphone earphones <laughs> I'm a little, i think i'm a little worn out um anyway but thomas is also a part of a band called bond and the mash i don't think he's a part of it anymore but um something i discovered while researching thomas and uh also very great and we talk about that, so I don't want to. I don't want to waste your time and keep talking about it. Um, but that's great. Go to the show notes. Check out all things Thomas Oliverio and Tommy and the O's. I know. I believe there's another album coming very soon. So go to the Perpetual Doom uh, Bandcamp and follow Perpetual Doom. Follow all these things will be in the show notes. But uh, Perpetual Doom is a really great label, and they've put out some of my favorite artists and music over the last few years uh ryan sambal of the strange boys being one or kyle field of little wings tons of great stuff and there's a bunch of new stuff coming out on perpetual doom so please 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 check out perpetual doom it's a really great fucking label and it's indie it's real indie there's no subsidiary it's a guy named lou doing it all himself with his partner so do it support them go buy some stuff Go check out their Bandcamp page and just peruse, and you'll probably go, oh, I'd like all this. And, oh, Grady Strange. Grady Strange is another one. Um, speaking of which, this conversation is two parts. Thomas Oliverio and I talked for two hours. The second hour is on my on my Patreon page, which you could go to themattthewire.com, and you could become a Patreon subscriber. Five bucks a month, you could listen to this part two and the many other part twos of my conversation that live solely on my Patreon, as well as I often do blogs and various other things. So please, go to my Patreon, become a subscriber, five bucks, part two um, of that. And we get into my life a little bit, my history of some of the stuff. And I told a story about uh, uh, Dan Castellaneta, a.k.a. Homer Simpson, and Tracy Allman, that I witnessed a monumental moment in television and comedy history. You could hear about that on my Patreon. Um, anyway, speaking of Patreon and websites, my wife, Kelly R. Dwyer, does websites. If you need a website, go to kellyrdwyer.com. She does a website. And I'm also I'm working on a project I cannot announce yet but very soon, but it is with the Climate Emergency Fund, and I'm one of those, I, I don't know, I take 
the climate crisis very serious. I'm very concerned for the future of my daughters. But if you can, donate to the Climate Emergency Fund. And I can't wait to announce this project I'm doing. Can't say it yet, but I can't wait. I think that's it. I think that's all the things I have to say. If you can't become a Patreon subscriber, by the way, just tell your friends about it. Sharing the podcast is more important to me than money, though I do like money because I have two kids and I'm currently not working. (laughs) So (laughs) that gives you incentive to feed children. Become a Patreon subscriber. All right, I'm going to leave you there. I think that covers everything. Enjoy my conversation with Thomas Oliverio. Are you from Kentucky originally? No. Well, actually, so I was born outside Chicago. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, this is why you're great. This is why you're <laughs> Yeah. I've got some Chicago family uh, and connections and stuff. So I lived in Lake County, Indiana. I was born in Lake Candy, Indiana. In Indiana. I can't hear with these headphones on. Um and uh, whenever I was younger, like five or six, we moved to outside of St. Louis, like an hour in Southern Illinois. And uh, when I was 18, I moved to Kentucky. So it was a later, later in life thing, but I had, I had lived in Kentucky like longer than anywhere else. And that's where all my f- immediate family lives uh, currently. Um, so I had a band up there called Bond and the Mash. I was um, listening to that this morning. Oh, cool. It's fucking great. I was like, I don't know. I was very impressed by all your music so far. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad you listened to it. That's really cool. Like, I wouldn't, wherever I'm at right now, I wouldn't be where I'm at without that experience of learning how to play music on stage in front of people, learning from the guys in that band who actually were really actually good musicians. And I, I was kind of, when we, when I started the band with the guys, I wanted to start a band, um, specifically and, uh, had some inspirations to do that and found linked up with the guys in that band and everyone kind of had a, um, a dynamic, like I was the business booking, organizer guy and, and, and our guitar player was the lead singer and songwriter and the fiddle player was like the band leader, musical director with those are like our strong suits, um, coming into the project. But after 15 years or something, we all started to get better at all those roles, you know? And, um, that was a really cool experience to be in such a tight band where we live together, you know, all of you. Cause there's um, like eight, six, eight people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of people. Um, we slept on a lot of floors together and, um, shared a lot of houses and stuff up in Kentucky and Paducah. There's a great music scene in general up there. Um, punk rock, bluegrass, um, some artists from our area that we all came, came up together, um, are doing really well right now. We got like J.D. Wilkes from the Shack Shakers and Shana uh, Goodman, S.G. Goodman's doing really well right now, and Kelsey Walden on uh, John Prine's Oh Boy label. Um, I don't want to start naming people and leave out people, but um, there's some people from our area in Western Kentucky and Kentucky in general with like Sturgill and um, 
Timmy Childers and there's a bunch of people, Ian No, um, Kentucky's really strong musical, um, place to be for, for forever, you know? So I'm lucky to be, to be born in the Chicago area, but like grow up in Kentucky and like learn how to play bluegrass from people whose grandparents were teaching us. And we used to go to the Kentucky Opry, my friends, the Campbell family own this place called the Kentucky Opry. And, um, it's like a little resorty Branson show, you know, show spot in, in the lakes area, but they hosted all these great artists over the years, like all the, you know, from the eighties on up, Bill Monroe, Waylon, all these people played there and the three brothers, grew up on stage. So they, they were a big part of Bonnie and the Mash, uh, learning how to perform and stuff too, was the Campbell brothers, Clayton uh, and Cody both live here in Nashville. And, and Cody is the main keyboard player on, on Mariposa gold. Um, another guy from Bonnie and the Mash, uh, Logan Oakley, who wasn't an original member. He was like 16 when, when, when uh, he started seeing us and like sneaking into the shows and then he started like playing our, like, he's like, I learned these parts to the songs. And then he starts playing in the band. Him and Cody both were several years younger than us, but Logan plays on Mariposa gold. And then the drummer from Bon and the mesh, uh, Bray, who's one of the best musicians that I've ever played with. Uh, he plays on my, on my record, all those guys were living in Nashville. I was here. And, um, the other guys from Bon and the mesh were, are, are currently living back home in Paducah and playing more music than, than anyone. Um, they have a band called the wheelhouse rousters where they play on, we, we all kind of came up playing on riverboats, um, as the entertainment playing on the Delta queen and, other boats like that. And, and they still do that with their folk trio. Um, and, and teaching lessons up there and, and doing a lot for the community and the rest of us were here, like kind of getting more electric. Um, but anyway, when you played on the river boats, how, how long would those gigs be? Were you playing for hours, hours upon hours? No, it would be more of a, um, traditional evening with kind of set maybe two sets, you know, uh, after dinner, but they would, it would be a, a days long event of like the boat would Paducah is on the Ohio river at the confluence of the Tennessee and the Ohio. So tow boats come through other boats come through like this and, um, a boat like, the Delta queen, for example, like they docked right downtown Paducah people from the community, like come out and watch this just to like, you know, cause it's a vibe for sure. And, uh, have a picnic or, you know, watch the boat come in. These boats will dock and like let people, let passengers off and they can like explore our little downtown area and get lunch. And then they like to hire like local bands to come on board so sometimes we'll get on board and play our show. We'll have dinner, play the show and get off. And then they'll leave, uh, and go down to the next spot. But then there's times where we would have to meet them in like Newburgh, Indiana, or meet them in Nashville, or we would pick up in Paducah and they would drop us off in Nashville and have a, 
have a vehicle drive us home. So it was, it was an amazing experience playing as a string band. Like when we first started coming up, we were like really all about playing acoustic string band, old timey kind of stuff. We were really into like old timey history of Paducah. A lot of the songs were about the area. We certainly weren't playing electric music at the time. And, um, that changed when we met our drummer and started getting pickups in our acoustic instruments and exploring that aspect. Um, That's pretty great. I mean, like working as a musician, that that doesn't happen so much. (laughs) Bond of the Match did really well with working. Like we were, we, in 2007, we played like 155 shows and um, we, you know, all DIY, we would, we would make a record, print like a couple thousand CDs, go sell them and pay them off the first month and then just use them as band currency, you know, giving them away and using them for gas money. We went through three or four vans. We had a, we bought a police surveillance van our last van was a police surveillance van we got at an auction. It had a periscope in it where you can like look out of and it was soundproof. Um, That's pretty wild. Pretty interesting vehicle. Um, But yeah, so many good memories with Bond and the Mash and um, my band, the Tommy and the O's, we just played a show Friday night and it was a, it was good to like get back into playing with a full band again. I forget how, how, how important that is to, you know, let these songs like live in 3d, you know, to play them. Cause they sound so different when we were playing them live. Like we just definitely jammed them out quite a bit. And, um, yeah, it's just nice to be able to play music with people, especially your friends that I've, everyone that I play with is a friend of mine that I, have been with for a long time, you know, most of the time. So everybody on Mariposa Gold has known me for years, you know. It's not like just like a studio band. Yeah. Because listening to that album, there's, you can tell, there's just like a lot of different influences. And that's why I was, when I first heard it, I was curious. I was like, where... What, how did this, how did you build towards that? And of course, hearing that you come from Kentucky makes a lot of sense because there's such, from, I've interviewed a number of people from Kentucky and it's like, there's such a rich, like music legacy and history. And it seems like you can't, no matter what kind of music you end up playing, that all the other stuff like bluegrass and country is all going to be fucking, you're going to be rooted in that somehow. Yeah, I'm... Like I said, I'm super thankful to have that as, you know, I, I, I kind of came up playing, you know, my uncle gave me a guitar when I was like five or six and I always had it. And in, in high school, I got a bass guitar and played like in a garage band bass, but, um, nothing crazy, you know, playing like, um, cover songs, rage against the machine cover band basically. And, um, I definitely hear that in your current music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Man, they are on tour right now. Oh, it's so cool to see. Like, um, I got a really great experience. So I've, in in addition to playing music, 
I also work behind the scenes quite a bit on, and have gotten a chance to be on tours that are big, um, bigger than what I've been able to do with my music. But, uh, this, this, um, group that I went out on tour with in 2018, we went, we went out with several acts, um, as like a backstage private catering, uh, unit and they're on the rage against the machine tour right now, uh, doing, doing the meals, but I keep an eye on their, their, uh, social media and stuff. And those shows are rowdy. Like I haven't seen a mosh pit in years. Um, I, I was never much. I always stayed out of the pit. <laughs> I yeah, me too. The music don't like being punched. Not into that either. <laughs> I'd love. I think that was my first concert, though. Like, uh, I remember getting like being like fifteen, like five foot one, hundred pounds, and being in like this Deftones mosh pit at a Point Fest in St. Louis. So uh, yeah, gotta avoid the mosh pit. <laughs> Well, but they're like, I mean, they're literally raging against the machine right now. Um, do you see their that video of like the security guard tackling the guitar player from the band on accident? No, he got tackled off like on stage to off of like t- off of the stage. Ta- like I don't know how he didn't get hurt. And then the lead singer like broke his leg during one of the shows, and they had to carry him off. Like it's it's pretty visceral experience they're a little old for like they're in their 50s <laughs> like, that's that could be tom tom morello also from outside chicago just to point throw that out there yeah he rocks the cubs hat all the time right yeah yeah he play i i work with uh wayne kramer a bit like with a charity thing and i've seen those two jam together a few times and it's just like fuck it's just like oh well two, two fucking masters just destroying it <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. I definitely was inspired by that pitch shifting stuff and in my in a lot of the Bone and the Mash projects and this other project I had called Boot Dagger that was like a electronic thing. I was I used that quite a bit. That might have been a subconscious rage against the machine uh influence, the pitch shift. I don't have one now. I need to get one. Did you so when you were like growing up was and because you were saying you're doing rage covers and stuff? How did you veer back towards what uh, sort of bluegrass? Which also I wanted to ask because I saw that um, Bond and the Mash was called Amer- experimental Americana, which I thought was interesting. Is how it was labeled. Yeah, we were kind of doing. We were in that genre before it became a genre, and we always had a hard time labeling ourselves. You know, we bluegrass. It's definitely not bluegrass because that's a specific, exact formula. You know, like it's a specific sound. We definitely were experimental fusion, like bluegrass fusion. But like, we would get a lot of backlash from bluegrass purists because we would do that. Like, we love that kind of music. I love playing like traditional or hardcore bluegrass music, try to make it sound just like it's supposed to. But then when you start writing original material and then you use those instruments to like convey your song, it takes a different, you know, you're, you're stepping away from 1946 and bringing it into the present. But um, yeah, like playing, not, not being serious about grade school, high school, you know, um, music, but it being really important to me. And then like being in college and, um, I, I had always, um, 
been like a runner and uh, I ran, I ran cross country and track competitively from like first grade through college. And that's like what I would based every decision on for a long time. And in, in college at a certain point, I stopped, I quit the team and, um, I made like a little bit of a decision to like apply the disciplines of my practicing instead of practicing running, I would try to start practicing how to play guitar and learn it better and meet people. I got into like the jam band music growing up. So they kind of turned me on to the bluegrass world a little bit. Um, listening to the grateful dead and, um, fish and stuff like that. Like a lot of people might not like that kind of music now, but, um, it definitely was a huge influence on me and Bon and the Mash. And like, I went out to the string cheese incident concert in 2003 in Colorado and with my buddies. And when I came home, I like got a mandolin immediately. Cause that's where I like kind of got turned on to it and, um, decided I wanted to like start a band, play, start playing shows and just kind of started from there. Um, but being in Kentucky, I think, having access to those festivals and all that, maybe we got more direct into to playing like traditional bluegrass at the beginning. We, that's what we were trying to do at the very beginning was like emulate. Like we, we have a recording on Spotify of like big spike hammer, which is like a traditional bluegrass tune. And, you know, we tried to make it sound like a bluegrass song. Um, but then you like dip into the catalog and there's stuff like little piece of paper and other things, you know, rock and roll stuff. We, we, we had a lot of different in influences and didn't want uh, to make one type of music. Yeah. I was funny. I listened to a lot of twenties, thirties, forties music, uh, specifically like this one station. And sometimes they'll play contemporary versions of those songs. And they always drive me nuts because it's, there's a, there's more of an emulation than an actual sincerity to it. <laughs> like there's nothing worse than somebody singing in that old timey voice. <laughs> that's, like, that's not how you sing. That's how they sang. And that was, a, right. it's like, it, I don't know where I was going with that, but it, I don't, if it's that, almost like listening to like, um, um, what's it called? Like, um, the modern church music. Um, like contemporary, like adult contemporary. Oh yeah. Contemporary Christian music. You know, it's like, uh, I'd rather hear like the old timey spooky stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of, I was around a lot of born again, Christian music in my high school years. And there was always like the Christian punk band. And then people would be like, it sounds just like the Ramones. I'm like, and it's all they ever did was just copy something. It was never like good. <laughs> right. It was always just like, oh, you're just trying to be this other band. Like, and if they weren't Christian, people would just be like, fuck off. But because it was in the Christian world, people were like, well, this is ours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I love like gospel shit, old gospel or the spooky stuff. That stuff's all good. Scare the shit. Right. Yeah. I grew up in the Catholic church. So I like the uh, haunting, uh, fear driven music, <laughs> just like a scary, we had this organist named Lonnie, you know, and he was like, I, I wish I could have got his story, man. Cause he was like the only church organist I remember when we were in 
church when I was growing up, went to Catholic school for first grade through sixth grade. And, uh, you know, you're playing those songs and all the call and response stuff. And, um, but I could only imagine growing up with better, better music in church. Like that's the thing, like so many great drummers and guitar players and people in the South here grew up singing in church, playing in church, but like good, good music, you know, not to say that the spooky Catholic stuff isn't good, but, um, it's not, it's its own brand of, you know, yeah, there's not an XM radio station called like Catholic <laughs> ballads. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. I listen to a lot of WWOZ. I'm sure you know that station out of New, in New Orleans. Yeah. yeah. And, they'll play a lot of the old gospel stuff and it's just like you hear stuff like that like and you're just like oh fuck like it's just a great station yeah i love the tune in app and uh, i love radio i've always loved radio growing up i recorded it like on the cassette tapes i did that too it's yeah you had the built-in dubbing thing and you make like you hear a song on the radio and you and you get it um and chicago public radio had blues till blues till sunrise so i would go to bed but i would record it and it would also also automatically flip and keep recording flip sides whoa i think maybe i'm high (laughs) but but like so that's how i learned like a lot about blues is just like listening to that show and taping it and being like but i don't know i've never met anybody we used to call into the radio all the time and get a kick out of that like get getting on the radio calling in a b96 um was a radio station in Chicago. Remember, do you yeah, remember I, that one? Yeah, B96. They used to have some hotline thing, but I remember like staying at my cousin's house and us just calling in and getting through and just thinking it was like the biggest deal. I also called in to QVC when I was a kid and got on, <laughs> I got online, I got on the air, you know, I was bullshitting something, but I was, I don't know. I needed to be heard for, for, from an early age, I guess. That's an interesting <laughs> way of like, connecting that like needing to be heard because i would, <laughs> i would call and then i would have nothing to say and i was like i shouldn't be heard <laughs> right well it was probably closer to that but just just wanting to get through and not really having a plan for what would happen do after you, you know still listen to a lot of radio i do i i do i just discovered um another sponsor for your show you could look into <laughs> is called Ra- radio garden have you heard of that one i don't know it's really neat it's like um it's like a combination of tune in and radio do you know that one w- w- website it's like radio with like several o's after it yeah and it has a map and you can like click on brazil and then you can click on your decade yes and it yes. and it just plays well radio garden is the map and you can click on it and pinpoint and like you could click on North America and Chicago and then it will just like populate all the radio stations in that area and you can select and listen to radio radio stations. Um, But like a map uh, driven platform instead of like tune in where you have to like type in the station you're looking for and you save it. Um, it's, it's pretty neat though. Radio garden uh, worth checking out if you like listen, but it's pretty amazing. Like to have the tune in app go in. I listened to, uh, there's a station that, so I spent a lot of time in California 
when I was making this record. And, um, one of the things I would do out there would listen to this radio station called KCPR. And, um, they, it's like a community, it's like a college radio station, um, volunteer. So it's out of San Luis Obispo. That's what I thought. Where Cal Poly is. And, um, and I spent a lot of time close to there and would go out and listen to this station and, I just heard a lot of music that I had never heard before and it it definitely had an aesthetic. So I listened to that station even still, um, here at home in in Nashville. Um, I love, I love listening to that. There's, I could go on and on about radio stations. When you, Um, when you said they played music that you don't, that you hadn't a lot of music you hadn't heard. I was wondering like in what, what like new or all what genres are like, it was it vast. So it's like, it's a college station, um, with multiple DJs. So definitely like already like a younger generation is the DJ. So there's new, you know, a lot of newer music I'm not, um, hearing about yet. And, um, but I don't know, it was more of like this psychedelic California sound and maybe like you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be like, um, you would find stuff like maybe like that Kurt Vile guy or Tame Impala, or it would be like the more like mainstream, more well-known artists that I could like think about relating it to, you know, maybe they play like Sunny in the sunsets and that kind of genre, you know, I got into like, you know, come up and coming up in like bluegrass country and stuff. And I'm out in California and I met, um, um, some really cool people out there that turned me on to different kinds of music that I hadn't been exposed to in that radio station. And I think a lot of that came through in the album. Um, it doesn't sound like that kind of stuff, but it was just like the set. It was like my soundtrack while I was making it, you know? Right. Yeah. And I would be out there making beats and stuff, um, along lines because I make all kinds of different music. Um, not just like, bluegrass or rock and roll, but doing some beat making out there and tapping into that. Um, and I met the, I met this, um, really cool influential dude, Zeb Zates out there in, in California. And he had a band called Sparrow's Gate with his brother. Um, they're fantastic. And they introduced me to Kyle Fields from little wings. Oh, yeah. He's little wings or whatever, Kyle. And, um, I think that's how, perpetual doom got on my radar was through Kyle releasing. I might've like, I think that they sold one of Kyle's records and I had gone online to buy it because I was a supporter of his music and, uh, found out about them and saw their really loved their aesthetic and uh, the other artists they were representing. And, um, so I had made a point to reach out and got in touch with them with when, when I, when my record was, was ready. Um, and got really lucky. So it, it, it kind of helped me find a home for the record too, was that experience of being out in California. And, um, I started writing that record. We went out to Yosemite for that, like December 21st, 2012 weekend. Like, what was that? The, was that the Mayan calendar? The 2012 thing? Oh, like when the world was going to end? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always it's always the world ending with the Mayan calendar. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, it was I think that. that. That's when I started writing the songs, and like I was out in Mariposa Grove. So Mariposa Gold came from that, and like it's in the news right now. It's on fire. It's kind of crazy. I've been really sad about that. Um, and I guess we know that it takes fire for growth. Uh, but I hope that that fire goes out. It sounds like it's getting kind of out of control out there, but that's a really special place for me to get a chance to go to for several years when I spent a lot of time out in California and, um, started working on the songs and got the band in the studio, um, in 2016 and started tracking the record and, um, didn't finish like the, the version that you hear today, I got mastered in like February, 2020. That was like the end of it. And like, once I signed with perpetual doom, we had to wait like almost over a full year to put it out after I'd already waited like a year to after it had been finished. It was a long, long, long period. I don't recommend taking that long for a record. It was almost like a 10, it's basically like a 10 year record. It took me about 10 years. So, cause I put out living in the swamp in 2013 thinking that would like lead to the full album really quickly. But I got sidetracked working for other bands and, you know, studio time, it's hard to come by. You know, you gotta, it, it took a long time to make it. Is that happening? Um, waiting around? Like even when it's finished, like you're just like two years, was it two years since you finished it? Yeah. Like, um, I had finished it and pitched it, but then I decided I like went on this whole other path and, um, was going to go to law school. And, um, after about a year of that, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to give the record one more shot and, um, see if I can get someone to put it out. And I did, I got a couple offers on it the second time and was lucky enough to be able to choose to go with perpetual doom because I was so impressed with not only like what they're putting out and the, and the vibe and aesthetic, but like that Lou called me the first time and we talked for like an hour about the record, about the music. He had asked me questions about it just like he was really listening, which meant so much. And like another label had reached out about it and I couldn't even like get him on the phone they were just sending me emails and I was really happy and thankful to have somebody else, you know, after like living with this record by myself for so long, like to start getting other people involved. But I didn't feel good about anyone else. I talked to about it except for them. Lou is, and so Lou's doing something special and magical. I truly like out of, he's truly fucking cares. And every artist I talk to just is like, couldn't be happier to be with that label and the way he, yeah. And it's, and some of them are people who've been around it for a while. So there is that more, I get, I don't want to say jaded, but you know, they've dealt with labels and they dealt with the bullshits and everyone's like fucking glues the best. (laughs) Yeah. He really does listen, you know, and, and cares about, he's not going to put something out that he's not feeling and, um, has a connection to. And I love that because they're putting out such cool music. 
and everything else too. Like there, there's a lot of great videos coming out. Um, but all the, all the albums, um, that have come out in the last year, especially cause I've been paying so much attention to it the last year have been excellent. And I listened to them on my own. Like I, I dig it all. I subscribe to the tape cassette club myself, um, because I want to, you know, support this cool project. I was, I was telling him that like, um, whenever I was a kid, we used to, one cool thing I, I really appreciate was we got to do the Columbia house and BMG cassette club thing where we'd get, there's you what do you get like 12 for the price of one or 10 for the price of one. And we would get to pick out a couple cassettes, you know, or CDs, um, with no like really limitations, just like whatever you want. And, um, that was pretty cool. And so I, I was like a tape collector, record collector. I've been a record collector my whole life. So to finally get a record of my music put out and stuff is pretty sick. Like pretty crazy. Um, and it sounds good too. Like we got it pressed in Philadelphia with these folks called soft wax, which I would highly recommend anyone who's looking to press vinyl records, um, soft wax in Philadelphia. The turnaround time they had was excellent. Does it compared come with to, like uh, Philly cheesesteak grease on it? It probably, <laughs> some of them might, I only, the I've only opened one record so far. <laughs> <laughs> Philadelphia is, a, um, I love Philly. Great food, great yeah. food world there. My, um, the, but Bedia Pizza is, uh, he's out of there and he's been, what's it called? I, I think, I think, I think it's Pizzeria Bedia now. It used to be called something else. He's got a great book called Pizza Camp. Like he was labeled like the best pizza dude in the country for a while. There's this really great Italian neighborhood there. Um, I got a chance to visit when I was on tour in 2018. I think it's like what, like fourth street or eighth street, ninth street, something like that. And it's all Italian shops, um, bakeries. There was this one restaurant called Ralph's. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. There's a great neighborhood in St. Louis called the Hill. That's all Italian restaurants. Um, this spot in Philadelphia, Chicago, is there like a area like that? There's a couple. There's there's a little Italy, and then there's a neighborhood to the west that's a bunch of still like all the old school delis, and it's kind of Oak Parkish, but it's like all these old. And actually, Tim Rutilli from Califone, his family has is one of their is one of the restaurants, and it's like this old school Italian. Like there's a lot of old school joints that have been there since like the fifties, forties, fifties, sixties. I could eat. At the, I, I'm not. I'm a. I always joke that my mom must have fucked a, an Italian behind my back <laughs> because because like I make. I'm obsessed with making pizza and eating. Like I walk into an Italian deli and I'm like the happiest fucking guy on earth. Just the smell. Oh yeah. Have you done the ancestry.com? <clears throat> no, my but my like aunt. All the old people in my family are doing it. No Italians. So I'm you convinced my mom get it checked. Somebody. Yeah. You never know. You might find a you might find a brother out there, uh, my, Tony. My uh, <laughs> my my dad had some questionable friends, and we had fun. And a mobster tried to buy one of my brothers because he couldn't have kids. And my, it's funny because my brother's just like a violent uh, 
thief. And I'm like, oh, that would have worked out well. He should have been, <laughs> like, been in the mob. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like he had potential. He could have gone far. He didn't do much else in life, so. <laughs> some drug dealing. Some <laughs> Did you, uh, I wanted to go back because you mentioned you almost went to law school. Was there a crossroads or some sort of point where you were like, I'm going to get out of it? Like, I need something else? Yeah, I um. I was on this tour. So I mentioned that like I was working with this group that was catering the rage against the machine tour. It's called Dega tour catering. And, um, long story short, like it's this top of the line private catering company that my friend's wife had started at the time. And they started out doing like Bob Dylan's tours, Tom. Pe- um, I was on this tour for six. I was on Taylor Swift's reputation tour for six months doing all the backstage stuff. And we were also doing, Little Big Town, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, uh, Foo Fighters. It was like a big deal. Bruno Mars tour. They work all that stuff. You were doing uh, food or other stuff? I was doing the VIP dressing rooms. So I was like setting up all the dressing rooms with food and beverage and the VIP tents. And we were also serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. It was pretty wild. It was like 18-hour days um, stadium tour. And there was some stuff going on in the music industry at the time, especially with like Spotify and royalties and copyright. And she was going through some shit with, um, having to re-record all of her albums to have ownership over them. And I had been, I got to be around that whole scene for a long time and saw her lawyer and heard about things like that. And I had always kind of had an interest for that. And when I was working with these bands, I used to tour manage, Pokey Lafarge, which was an act on third man records and learned a lot from them. You know, they trained me how to be a tour manager and, um, did a lot of contracts and did a lot of things like that. And with my band bond and the mash did all that stuff. So it was like, I was already kind of doing the business and it just seemed like I wanted to, after being on in 2018, being on tour eight months out of the year, I definitely was like, had my fill of traveling and wanted to be home and find a different path, you know, as a career, I I wasn't like going to quit playing music, but I definitely was looking for like a more, more of a stable, you know, like way to make money. Um, and working in a law office before and, you know, having, it was like in my wheelhouse, but it was, I'll never do it now because of perpetual doom. So I really appreciate Lou for <laughs> helping me, helping me uh, stick to this. I mean, but no, I kind of like flipped a coin almost. I was like, you know, if I can get this record out, I'm going to go back into music full on and give it one more shot. I'm older than I look. And, um, I'm just like, I got to give it one more shot here. I've been working on this music stuff for 15 years and it's hard to just like stop doing it and switch gears and start a new thing, going to law school for four years. And it's, that just sounds so intense, you know? I was going to say, once you've like been a creative, cause I've done that. I went, I was like a creative guy and then I had a kid and I was like, well, I guess I should be responsible. Took a corporate job. And I was like, now I know why people fucking drink themselves to death. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm not cut out for this world. Do you think you could have done that? Well, I think I would have ended up being like, and I still might do it, but I saw myself as being like an artist manager 
for like one big artist and having the legal background to execute things for them. Um, I wasn't trying to like work in big law or a big firm or a small firm or anything. I just, I kind of wanted the ability to offer that to somebody and help manage their, their career, you know? Um, but I, I don't know. I think that, that once you go down that road, it'll probably open up a lot of different avenues for work and stuff. But I was interested in more of like the copyright Spotify. I wanted to come after Spotify for like, there's no reason why their CEO makes $3 billion. Um, if he made, I mean, if realistically, like even if he just made 1 billion and they took that other 2 million and split it up amongst the artists, that would make him look pretty good. Right. Um, and it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but it is absurd that like, okay, not only are you basically stealing our, I mean, we're, we're uploading this music to their server. Like we're, we're allowing it to be on there it's a double-edged sword because as a listener and you probably had people talk about this on your show, but like as a listener, Spotify is pretty amazing, you know, playlists. I used it for this show. I just did on Friday. I made a playlist of the set that we played in order, sent it to everyone. They could listen to it and practice with it. Um, but as an artist, it sure does feel like you're getting ripped off. And I remember back in the day when Bond and the Mash put out our first couple records and there was iTunes and they would sell our album on iTunes for nine 99 and they would keep 30% and we would keep $7. They would keep $3. That was the cut. And we would literally have people downloading an album regularly. You know, we didn't get rich off of it, but we had money coming in um, from iTunes all the time one song download 70 cents, but that doesn't happen anymore. I don't even know if iTunes exists or whatever, it's but Apple music, you can buy from there. Cause I've had to, I've had to, for like whatever reason, I try to do Bandcamp though. Bandcamp is cool. And then like, there was a time where I got kind of fed up with it with like example with Bond and the Mashes music. We have five albums and I was like, you know what? Spotify, like we're not getting anything out of it. Let's pull everything off of there. Only make it available on Bandcamp. And when we did that, we did have people download it from Bandcamp and we made a little bit of money, but there was a demand. Like, why aren't you on Spotify? What you're going to miss out on playlists. Like even like everyone in the band wanted it on there. So we had to put it back after experimenting with it, but we had lost all of our plays that we had built up to that point. So it was like starting over. It's just like a, um, I don't know. It's in its early stages. I think they'll have to work it out. But um, do you have any hope with, uh, I forget which representative, somebody's pushing it right now to better royalty. There are some, yeah, there's some movements. Um, it has to be a government intervention because the, the, those fucks aren't going to suddenly be like, you know what? I'm going to be a good guy. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to be so greedy. Yeah. It's got to be regulated almost like the stock market or something, you know, the, but I don't know. It's just, I don't know what the answer would be to fixing it, but it's a great platform. We've built it. Like we've got this cool thing that has a database of all of our music, but 
there just needs to be like, and not only does that guy make a lot of money, I mean, $3 billion is insane, but like everyone that works at Spotify makes a ton of money too. And, um, I think their average salary is like six is over six figure salary. And it just seems like they could distribute it a little bit differently, you know? Well, also just like spending, they can't, not just Rogan, but other podcast people, they've spent insane amounts of money for podcasts. And I'm like, but this isn't what you, this isn't, Rogan isn't going to make you fucking the money hundreds of musicians, thousands of musicians are going to make. Like, it's just this, it's just bizarre. It's such a, I can't, I'm lack of a better word, a diss, and I don't want to use that word, <laughs> to musicians and art and creativity. It's just such a fuck you to everybody's work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, music is obviously extremely important to everyone, regardless of their beliefs. Like, there's a song for everyone. And, um, yeah, I can only imagine the... I don't know how it's going to play out. It's, um, have you watched, cause I was trying to work on a pitch for a, about a, a documentary about Spotify and streaming. And I, so I did a decent amount of research and like some of his videos where he's trying to justify like how he's helping the artists. It's like, go fuck yourself, dude. <laughs> it's like, it's such bullshit. Like he's so full of shit. I think he might believe it though. Yeah. I don't, I don't think he's doing, I don't think he's on our side. That's for sure. <laughs> He looks like an evil. All these people are—they look like evil villains in a movie or something. You know what's crazy? They, he Jeff Bezos music. looks like an evil villain. They look like they could be like weird, like Spawn of like an evil because they look similar. They both got those. Not to shame their weird shaped heads. <laughs> they could be. They could be aliens. They might part be. of the aliens coming in to take over. Elon. Yeah, Jeff they, all Bezos, have- they all kind of like this Batman, like a modern day Batman villain, like the Penguin, <laughs> the Riddler, Jeff Bezos. You know, it's like it's, it's fuckface from Spotify, like tried to be a musician and quickly realized he couldn't. That's what was oh. the most fascinating thing to me. It was kind of like, oh, you couldn't do it. He's like the Hitler of music. That's what I thought. I was like, <laughs> I was like. Like you can't do it, so you're gonna punish everybody. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know where it came from. Um, but I do remember like, you know, growing up in being in college in the early two thousands and like discovering Napster. And I remember going to visit my friend who was at Indiana University and they had like a like an internal internet where you could click on folders of like your friend's computer and drag, drag whole folders over of music to, you know, and, and I remember visiting him and just like loading up a hard drive of all these songs and burning MP3s. And it was just, it made it like we were consuming so much music and hungry for it, but we were also going out and supporting it as like going out for live concerts like that was a full-time job for a long time was just like going to shows all the time and buying tickets. And, um, I don't feel like people go out as much maybe. Um, I don't know if I'm like a fine example, but like when I was doing Napster, I would do it because I wanted to see if I could 
because I was poor. So I'd be like, I want to see if I want to buy this album. Because if it if I didn't want to, if one song is great and then the rest of it sucks, you don't want to drop 20 bucks when you make $300 a week. <laughs> so I was like, it was like just saving myself, but I still would like use it as a tool to buy things and not, and to go see stuff. And I still do that with streaming. I don't use Spotify because I, I hit a wall with them because they pulled a bunch of, when they pulled the comedy stuff off, I was like, all right, that's enough. Like they were, because comedians were asking for their stuff to be represented with copyrights as music does. And they were like, Nope. And they yanked a bunch of stuff off. Huh? That's so weird. Yeah. It shouldn't be any different. Yeah. The one argument I get saw against the comedy thing is, is it's different with music because if a song is copywritten and it plays on the radio or it plays in a club or somebody does a cover of it, it all gets, no one's covering Richard Pryor jokes like <laughs> or playing it in a nightclub and I'm like okay that Carlos Mencia is right yeah, Mencia is <laughs> he's copying everybody's jokes he's apologized I think I he'll never get it that's like I don't even know what I'm talking about and I know that Carlos Mencia is known for his <laughs> copyright infringement <laughs> the only thing Joe Rogan's ever done that I liked is that he confronted him in a club in Los Angeles Oh yeah, I, I remember seeing that on Other video that, or something. I hope Joe Rogan suffers somehow. Suffers somehow. <laughs> I've got a. Uh, I don't watch TV very often, but I've got an antenna hooked up to a TV here. Like on sometimes late, like at night, you might want to turn the TV on, and this antenna pulls in these weird ass channels that I'd never heard before. There's like grit TV, oh, and grit, grit yeah. grits like old westerns, and then there's like true TV and crime TV. Um, there's one, there's one, um, what's it called? It just plays like America's funniest home videos all day, but not America's home videos. <laughs> it's called like, I don't know. It's like a bloopers thing, but there's this one channel that, that plays fear factor, like every night marathons. And so I started like watching these fear factor episodes and I, there's like some, like I'm surprised that he's not under fire for some of the stuff <laughs> that he said and did on that show. It's so wild. Um, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. And then I thought it was funny. That whole incident, that whole deal was weird like whether or not you like him the whole neil young thing was so bizarre like coming at pulling his music off of it um it's like why i i maybe this is where you were going but i was like why are do you not doing that to support artists why not that's what yeah i wish he would have been like hey you're not paying everyone enough this is a bad platform like why come after this one other artist and um kind of provoke some censorship which is kind of ironic uh to the his message you know in his music yeah because uh, that's what it would really take is like for if every all the big artists said we're going to yank our music unless you, you equally distribute blah 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 that's all it would take for spotify to be like oh we're going to lose paul mccartney okay we should probably do something and i'm disappointed in all the artists who don't take a stand who have that much fucking wait is that wrong of me to think <laughs> like you sh that's your responsibility that's their responsibility I, I believe yeah I maybe the musicians union would be somebody to start 
you know, there's needs to be more people, more unionization in music. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Thomas Oliverio from Tommy and the O's. Remember, part two of this lives on my Patreon. It's an extra hour of me and Thomas Oliverio talking about all kinds of great things. And he talks about his second album, or his next album coming out. So please, check that out. (laughs) 